So this morning, about a month ago, let me backtrack a little bit. About a month ago, um, I began to, th- to think about what I would preach um, this week, uh, as it's my opportunity to do so. And, and I thought, what is something that I need in my soul to understand? And I began to, to think about some issues. And um, we've been spending a lot of time in the New Testament lately, so I decided to preach a book of the Bible um, that honestly not many of us know much about. It's kind of hidden in the back of our Old Testament. It's, it's got a weird name, and, and we don't know much about it. And I was like, you know what? And it, it has a message that the Lord has been teaching me in the book. And I was like, this is perfect. Let's do this. If nothing else, if I completely drop the ball in a sermon, if nothing else, people will know something about a book of the Bible that they, they might not know much about. And so prepared, and as I'm walking through the back hallways, just about 30 minutes ago, um, I, I hear community groups lessons going on in the back room, and, and I hear, um, I believe it was um, Peterson back here saying Habakkuk. I'm like, what? What did he just say? Habakkuk. So I'm assuming the community group lesson was on Habakkuk this morning. Um, will everybody get a double dose of Habakkuk? So I promise you I'm not taking the easy routes, that uh, I'm not just copying and pasting what you heard this morning. Um, but I hope that it will be a blessing to you and that we can go in-depth in this. And so the message of Habakkuk is, is one of sort of waiting on God, as we just sang. We just sang, God, I will wait on you until my soul is satisfied, right? So have you ever thought this thought, though? God, I'm tired of waiting. What's going on? I, I cry out to you, and I cry out to you, and you do nothing. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous get sick and wither away and die? God, your word promises that you are good, but I'm not sure I can believe that right now. Like I want to, I I wanna believe that you're good, but I don't think I can. Have you been there? And and are you there right now? Or maybe you're here today and you're sort of on the other end of things and you're, you're thinking all of this God stuff is ridiculous. If God were real, he would have done something to prove it by now. All of you foolish Christians are wasting your one shot at life. You're thinking, I am enough. I don't need anything else. I am sufficient for everything I desire in life. And I certainly don't need to submit to the will of a divine creator. This is my life. Today's message from the book of Habakkuk will be for both of you. Today's message is for anyone who has ever been bothered by the ongoing existence of injustice in the world. And it isn't that all of us. Today's message from the book of Habakkuk is for those who are bothered by the existence of ongoing injustice in the world. Habakkuk is a small book, as you learned about this morning, two-thirds of the way through your Bible. And so let's open up to Habakkuk now together. If you would like to use uh, one of the black hardback Bibles in the pew rack in front of you there, um, it's on page 785, 785. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take that one with you as a gift. 
Uh, we'd love for you to have it, and there are plenty more where that came from, so don't you worry about that. It's yours. You, you take it and enjoy it. So as you're, you're finding it, Habakkuk was a, a prophet to Judah who lived and ministered somewhere around 626 to 590 B.C. In his lifetime, conditions in Judah would go from excellent to desperate, witnessing the great reforms of King Josiah and the subsequent collapse of the kingdom due to corruption from within and competition from without. So Habakkuk lived in a time of great cultural decline. The future wasn't looking very good for God's faithful people in Judah. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you are seeing the trajectory of our society and it's causing you to fear for the future. If so, this message is for you. And Habakkuk is unique among the prophets because normally a prophet would speak on behalf of God to the people, sort of God's mouthpiece to the people. Yet all of Habakkuk's recorded words are him speaking to God about the people. And I think this is what makes Habakkuk so helpful. He's showing us what it looks like to struggle with God in our hearts. We call this type of literature a lament, a lamentation, a crying out to God when you aren't happy with the way he's doing things. So let's look at the text together. It begins, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. You can sort of hear the anger and pain in Habakkuk's voice. This is his lament. This is his complaint. And it is essentially this. Why aren't you doing anything, God? Habakkuk's words are drenched in pain. Listen to him. He says, how long will you make me cry for help before you will listen to me? We both see the iniquity and wrong going on all around, but you just sit idly by letting it all happen. Why don't you do something, God? You see, pain has a way of distorting your perception of reality. It tints your vision. It's as, if, it's as if you put on glasses that colors everything with the suspicion of injustice. When you're suffering, what you see and what you feel isn't always what is true. And we see that in this lament. What Habakkuk is saying here is simply not true. God, he's saying, God, you don't listen. That's not true. God does listen. But it is true of his heart. And it is true of our human experience in this fallen world. His pain has distorted his theology. Maybe you be aware of that in our own lives when our pain can distort our theology. He's essentially accusing God of being an apathetic coward. Now, you might never say it that way, but when you complain about what God has or hasn't done, 
or what God should or shouldn't do, that's essentially what you're doing. You're saying, God, wake up. This place, these people, your people are a mess. And then God responds to this complaint in verses 5 through 11. He says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, I am doing something, Habakkuk, something so great that you wouldn't even believe it if I told you. You're not looking far enough, Habakkuk. You're only looking around at what's going on in Judah among your people. Look to the nations and see what I'm doing. Guys, know this. God is always working. God is working always. The question is not, is God going to do something? It's not even, what is God going to do? The question is, what is God doing right now? And this should sound familiar to some of you college students. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Chad, uh, the former RUF campus minister at VSU, and, and, and he, he was telling me about the work that they are doing. He says, Clint, we're not asking the question, what is God going to do at VSU? We're looking around and asking, what is God doing at VSU? And then we want to get in line with that. Not what will God do, but what is God doing? You see the difference in perspective? This is the perspective of faith. This is the perspective that realizes that God's ways aren't always our ways and that often his ways are surprising and cause us to wonder and be astounded. So what was God doing in Habakkuk's day? Verse six. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. He goes on to explain about the ruthlessness of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, this is another name for the Babylonians. Uh, These group of people would become to sort of be the archetype of all evil empires um, in the world. God says, you want to know what I'm doing, Habakkuk? I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Yeah, the Chaldeans. You know, that dreaded and fearsome nation that makes ISIS look like the Boy Scouts. Yeah, I'm raising them to power. And they are coming for you. And there's nothing you will be able to do to stop them. They'll sweep through like the wind. So that's totally not the answer Habakkuk was looking for, right? But this is what God was doing. And check this out. God was answering his prayers all along. They weren't the answers that Habakkuk was expecting, but God was answering his prayers. It's like this. You've been complaining about worldliness in the church. God says, I'm going to take down and embarrass your celebrity pastors. Tired of a corrupt Congress? I'm going to overthrow the whole system. Tired of unjust economics, Habakkuk? You're about to be marched off into exile as slaves. There will be no economy. Have you considered 
that this may be God's response to the evil in our land? Are we being given over to our lusts and self-sufficiency? Is our national security and freedom to create our own reality our God? What would we say if God brought someone like ISIS to power as a judgment upon a rebellious nation such as ourselves? Now, I'm not saying that's what he's certainly doing. Obviously, I have no way of knowing that. But what if he did? That's what I want us to think about this morning. What if he did? How would we respond? And Habakkuk has way more of a reason to be shocked by such a thought than we do. Judah was God's nation. He had promised that there would forever be a Davidic king upon the throne in Jerusalem. And he hasn't made that kind of promise to the United States. So put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes and listen to his next complaint in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, Habakkuk has two problems with God's plan. The first is revealed in the line, we shall not die. He isn't saying that God can't physically kill them, right? That would be silly. What he is saying is that you promised, God, that the Jewish people would always live in this land. You promised us. You made a covenant with us. You're not going to wipe out your own people, are you? You're not going to go back on your word, are you, God? See, this is what's great about Habakkuk. Habakkuk's questions arise from faith. He wants to believe God. He's trying to understand it. He's struggling to reconcile what he knows about God with what he sees. And he knows it's worth the fight. So if your experience seems inconsistent with what you know about God, maybe you'll find encouragement to press on in the example of Habakkuk. His second problem with God's plan is that the Chaldeans are worse than the Judeans. Look at verse 13. He's basically saying, God, you are holy. You're not going to use someone even more sinful than us to judge us, are you? You can't do that. That's not fair. Is it fair? Can God use a more sinful people to punish a less sinful people? And does that mean that the bad guys are going to get away with it? Here would be a good place to answer a common objection to the sovereignty of God. The idea that God rules in and above all things, including the actions of sinful men. It goes something like this. If God is using the wicked to accomplish his ultimate purpose, how can he still hold them accountable? Right? Do you understand that? You've probably asked this question. I'm sure most of us have. First, God is God. Amen? We are not. He is the potter. We are the clay. 
Who are we to tell God what he can and can't do? We got to start there. Yet still, God knows they are wicked and they aren't going to get away with any of it. See, Habakkuk's initial complaint is that God wasn't paying attention, right? He said, you're going, they're getting away with it, God. But God isn't missing anything. Look how God himself describes the Chaldeans in verses six through 11. He plainly and judicially mentions their ungodliness. So God is taking notes and he will deal with their sin in due time. But while they're around, why can't he use them to deal with your sin? Are you above correction? What if your objection to the sovereignty of God has less to do with how God uses sinful people and has more to do with your objection to your need of discipline? Why do you question God's patience with people like the Chaldeans but presume upon it for your own sin? What if God intends to use their harshness as a rod of reproof to wake up, refine, and correct his beloved people? Remember in verse four, Habakkuk complained about the weakness of God's law, right? He said the law is paralyzed. Consider this insight from one commentator. He says the Israelites' rejection of God's authority mediated through the law merely exposed them to the harsher experience of his authority mediated through an alien people. Man may determine by his conduct how he will encounter God's sovereignty, but he cannot escape it. That's good. Paul in Romans 2, 3 through 6 can be helpful here. He says, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. See, it's, it's like... We're accumulating wrath for ourselves, that our, that our sins are depositing wrath into a vault above our heads that are sort of just following us around, waiting for the day of judgment when the wrath of God will be released on all unrighteousness. The same commentator says, the sovereignty of God does not eliminate human accountability. The time of accounting merely varies. So you think it's wrong that you're being discipline now and they're getting away with it, their time is coming. So let this be a fierce warning to those of you who think you're getting away with your sin. You're not. The day is coming. You are storing up wrath that will one day be released like a river. Repent now. Find forgiveness in Jesus Christ because you won't get away with it. You simply will not get away with it. The all-seeing judge will do right. In chapter two, God unpacks this for Habakkuk. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. 
If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God is about to give Habakkuk a prophetic vision. It is to be an unignorable message of hope for the future. That's why he says, write it down and make it big so that you can see it when you run by. Peter sort of says a similar thing in chapter two, or in second Peter rather. He says you'll have to wait on it. Peter's speaking of people who scoff at the idea of a coming judgment because it hasn't happened yet. It's been a long time. When's this judgment coming? Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, right? You know this. And as a thousand years, as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, we need corrective lenses. Our pain and our sin distorts our vision of reality. I remember... uh, Many years ago, when I was still living at home, and my sister was getting glasses, my little sister, a lot of y'all know Katie, when she was getting glasses um, as a child, and, and I remember my mom and, and myself and Katie we were coming back from Waycross getting the glasses, and, and Katie was just like staring out the window, just like staring at the trees going by, and she was amazed that the trees had individual leaves on them. Because all she knew was just a blurry green thing, right? And she was amazed that she could see detail and that she could make sense of the trees. And this is, this is sort of true in our spiritual life, that, that we can sort of stumble through life without our corrected lenses of faith. We can, we can sort of get through life, but we're not seeing things clearly. We're not seeing things as they truly are. What we think is just a blob or a blur is actually an intricate design of many individual leaves. And so we need God's word to sort of give us these corrective lenses. In the vision the Lord gives to Habakkuk, he's saying in the years to come, you're going to need to be reminded of my word today. You're going to have to interpret your experiences, not in your own strength, not in your own understanding, not through the so-called wisdom of the world's theories, but you're going to have to interpret your experiences through the lens of my word. The righteous shall live by his faith. Faith is the corrective lens for our fallen eyes. Living by your faith is living in the world, not as it outwardly appears, but as God says it is. I'm going to say that again. Faith is living in the world, not as it outwardly appears, but as God says it is. This is what we would call a Christian worldview. It's seeing everything through those corrective lenses of faith. Everything. Faith isn't just relegated to esoteric spiritual matters on Wednesday and Sunday. Living by your faith should be determinative in every aspect of your life. Basic things like where you live, what you eat, how you work, how you parent, and yes, even how you vote. When the armies of Nebuchadnezzar come marching through your town, 
and you feel like you need to compromise the values of Christ to hold them off for another four years, you're living according to your own strength. Live in the world, not as you see it, but as God says it is. Then accept the providence of an all-wise God and make the most of it for his glory. This is a Christian worldview. This is living by faith. Now, the rest of chapter two is made up of, made up of an indictment um, against the Chaldeans and then by extension, all those who they become representative of in history. And then the sentence for their crimes. God is acting as the divine judge here. In verses six through 20, the Lord issues five woes or decrees of judgment against the wicked. We see in these woes the principle of lex talionis, which is common in God's law. And, and this is the principle of an eye for an eye. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. And this is not at the hands of some impersonal fate or in the hands of karma. Can we stop saying that, Christians? This is retributive justice at the hands of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. The first two woes are directed at those who practice unjust economics, who get rich by charging unfair interest and enslave people through debts. And they think that by building their nest on high, which is an image of a bird of prey, that they'll be safe from harm. God says, no, your house that you've built, your house itself will cry out to you as you come crashing down. The third woe is directed to those who spend their entire life doing whatever it takes at whatever cost, including bloodshed, to make a name for themselves. But God says, you're doing all that work for nothing because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I do want to point out here that this is the central woe. It's the third of five. There's two on each side. So God's judgment here revolves around the truth that the Lord's eternal purpose is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Woe to anyone who stands against that purpose. All of our labor should be toward that end for the fame of his name. The fourth woe is to those who get others addicted in order to manipulate them to their own shame. It's the loser at the bar who gets a girl drunk in order to violate her dignity for his own pleasure. It's the Congress who creates a society of citizens drunk on entitlements in order to retain their own power over them. But God sees, and God says, you're fond of giving people the cup in order to stare at their nakedness? How about you take the cup of my wrath from my right hand? Then he says, drink up and show your uncircumcision. That sounds harsh, right? Almost vulgar. But those are God's words. Those are the words of holy anger. So listen up, men. If you're manipulating someone right now, emotionally, physically, financially, especially someone weaker than you, especially a woman, for your own pleasure, you better repent right now. 
because the Lord is coming for you. And you can't handle what's in his cup. Finally, the fifth woe is in regard to idolatry. I think this one is put last because idolatry reveals the desire of man to create a God that we can control. A God that can be formed in whatever way we want. A God that is speechless and has no power to confront us. In idolatry, we do all the talking and our so-called God remains silent. But in reality, the living God sits in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silent before him. He is the one who makes. He is the holy judge and we are to shut our mouths and fall silently before him. And it's out of this silence that Habakkuk receives the vision. From this dreadful silence, Habakkuk witnesses a devastating desert storm. Chapter three stands out from the rest of the book. It's in the form of a psalm. In fact, at the end, we see that there are instructions to sing this uh, with stringed instruments. It starts out, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. I said it again, accordion. I'm thinking about music. According to Shigianoth. It would be bad to hear it to an accordion, I'm telling you. That's, that's enough hell. No one knows exactly what Shigianoth is, but most likely it's a musical term that refers to a style or a feel. A similar term is used in Psalm 7, which is also a lament. Some scholars believe it carries the idea of a scream of terror, which is fitting considering the content. So chapter two closes in silence before a holy judge. In this still, awful silence before God Almighty, we hear a prayer of fearful worship. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk says, I have heard the report of you, meaning I've heard the works of salvation through judgment that you have accomplished in the past. Then he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. What he's saying is, do it again, God. Do it now. Save us like you saved Noah as you judged the wicked through the flood. Do it again, God. Save us like you saved our ancestors from slavery in Egypt as you defeated Pharaoh's armies in the sea. Do it again, God. Save us and show us your glory like you did at Mount Sinai. In wrath, remember mercy. What a statement. Don't forget us in your anger, God. You have every right to be angry, but please remember mercy. Then this psalm poetically describes a theophany, which is a visible manifestation of God. God comes in a devastating desert storm. 
And so I, I picture Habakkuk out on the tower at his watch post overlooking the country after hearing from God in silence. And from that still, dreadful silence, he sees a ferocious storm rolling in from the south, powered by the fierce heat of the desert. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, which these are two locations south in the desert. Mount Paran is associated with Sinai. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. This is the image of a a thunderstorm, right? We've got the power of God veiled behind clouds and all we see are the flashes of lightning coming from his hand. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels, an image of the exodus. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Habakkuk sees these fierce flash floods washing away these ancient mountains. And he's reminded that God is the true everlasting one. So I saw the tents of cushion in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble fierce winds. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. This is imagery of the flood. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. So the sun and moon stood still. Well, this is the idea that there was cloud cover both day and night. We didn't see the sun. We didn't see the moon. All we saw was the wrath of God in this storm. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. What an image that is. I hear and my body trembles. Notice earlier in verse two, he said, I have heard the report of you. Now, after this theophanic storm, he says, I hear. I hear you, Lord. I hear and my body trembles. This word body is actually the word for belly. It's the idea of an upset stomach, that feeling in your gut when you're afraid. My stomach is churning. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk has seen the power of God. He's reminded that God hasn't forgotten. And he will save us. This is the vision. This is the vision of a great day of judgment upon the enemy of God's people. This is the assurance that God hasn't forgotten you. This is the assurance that God will make right every wrong you've ever experienced. This is the promise that your pain will be dealt with. When you read the prophets, 
This is a helpful illustration uh, to interpret. Prophetic visions are kind of like mountain ranges. From a distance, a mountain range looks like a single mountain. But as you get closer, you realize that there are actually multiple mountains at various distances. Habakkuk is seeing the mountain range of God's judgment. From his perspective, it all looks like one mountain of judgment on the Chaldeans. But he's also seeing past that hill to another in the future, to one farther away, to the hill of Golgotha, to the ultimate expression of in wrath, remember mercy where the wrath of God that we have all stored up for ourselves came pouring down on Jesus at the cross. God went out for the salvation of his people at the cross. Jesus took the taunts and the scoffing. Jesus was uncovered, exposed, and shamed. Jesus was pierced by Roman swords. And on the cross, Jesus turned the tables on the spiritual powers that control the wicked in this world in the heavenly places. In his death, the sentence of Lex Talionis was delivered. When it looked like God's enemies had finally won by killing the Messiah, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, is what Paul says in Colossians 2.15. At the cross, the seed of the woman crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And now we're just waiting on him to bleed out. You might be thinking, if Jesus defeated the powers of evil at the cross, why is there still evil in the world? Why am I still experiencing injustice at the hands of wicked men? Why did I have to attend the funeral of a friend this week? Friend, there's still one more hill in the mountain range of God's judgment. Yes, Christ has delivered the decisive blow and the enemy is in his death throes, but God has seen fit to delay his final judgment in order to extend mercy to his enemies. Who else would do this but our God? And this invitation of mercy is extended to all of you, even now. If you're here this morning and you haven't bowed the knee and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and you haven't come to him for full forgiveness, it is the mercy and kindness of God that you are here to receive this warning this morning. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And let this be an encouragement to the church. If you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? After seeing God's power on display, in fearful glory and coming to grips with God's perfect timing and wisdom, Habakkuk offers up this beautiful song of worship. See chapter three, verse 17. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. If everything I do, Lord, fails, and I have nothing left but you. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. See, when God gives you corrective lenses to see your experience through the eyes of faith, you begin to see that what you thought was hopeless is in reality a means to true hope in the Lord. And that hope will never disappoint. And that hope is the only hope that truly satisfies the longing soul. For those who trust in the Lord, even in the darkest moments, he makes me tread on my high places. What a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you did not leave us in the darkness and corruption of our sin to stumble through this world headlong towards hell and everlasting judgment. But you found a way to remember mercy and the wrath that we all deserve and you blessed us in Christ with everything we need So we thank you for that truth this morning. We pray that you apply this preaching of your word to the hearts of your people. Would you comfort the afflicted this morning? And would you provoke and afflict those who are comfortable in their sin and bring repentance for the glory of Christ as we proclaim his kingdom from this time forward forevermore. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, as we turn our attention to the table, when we consider the broken body and shed blood of our Savior, what we have before us are visible, tangible tokens to remind us and to confirm in our spirits that God hasn't lost interest in our pain, nor the power to deal with it. When we eat of his body and drink of his blood, we are eating and drinking in remembrance of him who entered into our pain, who knows more about suffering unjustly than anyone ever has or ever will. So as we enjoy this meal, may we rejoice in the Lord who goes out for the salvation of his people. And may we hunger for the day when we celebrate this feast together in its fullness in the day of consummation when Christ finally and forever makes all things new and the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Amen? So now I have to say this. This meal that we are about to enjoy is an ordinance of the church. It's a covenant ritual for God's people. If you are not a follower of Christ, meaning you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord and put your hope for salvation in him alone, and you have not been baptized, 
in obedience to his command, we ask that you abstain. Simply let the plates pass by. We believe that this is a sacred thing, that this is a powerful thing. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. And the only way that that is a good experience is if you participate in faith. Any participation in the body and blood of Christ apart from faith is one of condemnation. And we don't want that for you. And parents, this goes for our kids too. This is an important formative moment in the discipleship of your kids. Explain to them what we're doing and what it means. But if your kids have not confessed faith in Christ and have not been baptized, please, for their own sake, do not allow them to partake either. And we don't say all of this because we think we're better than you. We say this because we care for you and because it's more important for you to know Christ savingly than to partake at this time. Talk to someone after the service or make a note on the connection card. Pretty much anyone here would love to talk to you and help you see what the next steps in following Christ look like for you. So with that said, I'm about to ask God's blessing um, over our time of communion, and then uh, the plates will be passed out, and you'll receive two cups in the plate, one stacked on top of the other. Um, the, the bottom cup will have the bread, and the top cup will obviously have the, the juice. And if you would just separate those two, but hold on to them, because we want to partake of each element together as one body. And I, and I want to encourage us this morning to, let's do something different this morning. As the elements are passed, as you reflect upon the message and God's promises this morning, maybe instead of closing your eyes, keep them open. Look around and watch the elements spread throughout the room. This is a great blessing that I get each week from standing up here. Watch the elements spread across the room and see it as a sign that God is working, that God is fulfilling his purposes, that God is building his church, and that God cares about each and every person here. He hasn't forgotten you, church. So let's enjoy a feast together around his table. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for this time of communion, Lord. We pray that you bless the remembrance of our sin-bearer, Jesus, who bore our sins in his body and covers us with his blood. Feed us, O bread of life. Amen.